Foster Care Nation. Listen up. This is Foster Care and I'm Powered Trini. Strength for the powerless. Courage for the fearful. Hope and healing for wounded hearts. Welcome back to Foster Care, an unparalleled journey with Jason and not Amanda today because she's chasing kids right now. The world has um, has thrown us a curveball and they were all supposed to go to football practice and it's raining like crazy and they're not because they can't do it inside because there's a pandemic and we, we don't really know what we're doing today. So right now you're just stuck with me and not her. But I brought you a guest today. I brought you an author who has a book to tell us about and a life story to tell us about. I'm excited to talk to Ginger Berg today. How are you doing today, Ginger? I'm doing really good, Jason. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. You hollered at me online somewhere and showed me um, that, or told me that you had a book that, that you had written about foster care. And we got to talking a little bit. And I thought that the story was a really unique viewpoint, a place that most people don't have the opportunity to think about unless you were that kid. And um, it sounds like maybe at one point in your life, you were that kid, and now you have some of those kids. And so you've got some stories to tell about foster care. Can you tell us where, you know, how that, uh, can you tell us your introduction into foster care from where it started? Sure. Uh, So my husband and I, about eight years ago, both very strongly felt called that we were called to adopt. And as we prayed and researched it, we felt led to foster care with the possibility of adopting, knowing that a lot of the foster kiddos would hopefully be able to go back to their families. But if there were some that needed permanent homes, we wanted to provide that for them. And so we sat down as a family. We had three young kids at the time, and we kind of explained to them, talked to them what foster care meant, what it was going to look like. And they were so excited and just really ready to love on these kids and share our home with them. Well, that sounds amazing. So you and your husband decided you wanted to step into this world of foster care and adoption. Now, did you have that in your childhood? Actually, I did not. No? Um, I had a few friends that were adopted, um, but we never did that. However, after all of us moved out, my parents um, did, uh, it's not really foster care, but they were guardians of a girl that lost her parents, but she didn't ever want to be adopted. So they took care of her um, for about four years before she ended up aging out. Um, But that was after I was already grown. Um, What made you and your husband look at it and think this is something for us? I mean, was there a driving force? in your life, uh, an experience from the past, you know, some of you met, what, what really led you down the road towards adoption? Uh, so it was kind of interesting. I'd say it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was at a church ice cream social. I was eating some chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream and a lady was sharing about her adoption journey. They were currently adopting their third kiddo from overseas. They've now adopted four And as she was talking about their adoption story, all of a sudden, like mid bite of ice cream, I just knew in my heart that we were supposed to adopt. And I came home and I told my husband, I think we're supposed to adopt. And his initial response was, yeah, I don't think so. I don't feel called to that at all. And so I 
told God, I was like, I'm not going to pressure him or nag him or even bring this up anymore. If you really want our family to pursue adoption and that's what you want for our family, um, just talk to him on his own because I want it to be, we're both hundred percent on board and we both feel very strongly because as you know, it is such a tough journey that you cannot do it unless you are all in and there can't be one spouse kind of dragging the other one through it or it's not going to work. So it took about two or three months. Um, and then one day Dustin out of nowhere just said, you're right, we're supposed to adopt. And at that point he was finishing up his engineering degree so we took a semester and we prayed and researched and talked to all of my friends who've adopted in a variety of ways. I have friends that have adopted overseas, um, domestically, through foster care, and I just kind of talked to all of them um, and my husband as well. And at the end of it, we both just felt like foster care was what we were supposed to do. And we knew we weren't going to be adopting all the kiddos, but that was, that was where we were supposed to go. You know, I kind of know what you're talking about. I've had had one of those moments myself, and um, that's how my wife and I ended up on that journey as well. It was just one of those moments, and you go, huh, yeah, I think there's something there, and it wasn't long after that before we were neck deep in it. So how long How long after deciding <laughs> that it was, it was the right thing for you guys, how long did it take for you to get into the system? Um, so we started our, I don't know what state you live in. I should have researched better, but we live in Kansas and we have to do what's called MAP classes to get your foster care license. And it takes about three months just to get through those classes. And then you can start the process of all of the paperwork and getting your house ready. So it took, I think like maybe six to eight months from when we were like, yes, let's do it till we were actually fully licensed for foster care. Okay. Well, we're neighbors. We're in Missouri here. You're probably, I don't know how far into Kansas you are, but we're at least a couple hundred miles apart because, well, I've also been across <laughs> Kansas before and that's a wide state. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Yes. It's, it's quite a drive, but um, yeah, so we're, we're here in Missouri. So we have a similar process and we kind of fell in really quickly. So once you guys got into it, as, as you were looking back over all the, the, the research that you'd done and the classes and the things that you'd learned, were there any parts of it that really surprised you? Um, well, so our first placement was like a week after we were licensed and it was a sibling set of three. And I don't think any of our training prepared us to go from three kids to six kids that were all pretty much stair steps. Like it, we had a fourth, third, second, first. I mean, like we just had all of the grades of kids. And um, I, none of my training at that point really, I feel like prepared me for the amount of trauma and what that does to the developing brain. And so going back, I wish that I had some of the trauma training that I have now because I feel like I could have understood where they were coming from and why they were doing behavior so much better. Because, um, I mean, the MAP training was great, and it focused on a lot of things, but I, ours, at least at that time, just didn't explain how the brain develops differently when you have trauma and how it's going to react differently and just all of that. And so if I could go back, I would say that I would get all of that trauma training before we took placement or during that first placement. You said the magical T word, which is kind of a hot button 
topic here lately. Um, I assume maybe if you've had much trauma tra- trauma training, you know who Karen Purvis is. Are you familiar with TPRI? I so, uh, yes. Yeah, I did that. Uh, I got some of that training through my school um, for high school level. Really? That's really interesting because mm-hmm. I don't think we had any. Oh, I know we didn't have anything like that when I was in school, but my kids tell me I'm getting old and they might be right. So they, they <laughs> didn't, none of that stuff was even developed at that point in time. Um, but, but trauma is such an interesting thing. It really is. And we look at it and, you know, my wife and I in our own lives, you know, my wife should have been a foster child herself. Her, her childhood was a terrifying, scary place. And where she went for a safe place was, was a place that most people would have run from. Did you have any like real trauma stories that just shocked you? How, how are these kids even surviving? Oh yeah. Um, I can't, I don't feel like I can share the details, but you would read their intake information and it explain why they're in care. And I mean, it would just bring me to tears and I really had to work on some forgiveness for their, for the birth parents, because um, I would have a tendency to want to be kind of bitter and like, um, I don't know, unforgiving and harsh. Like, how could you, very judgmental when you read that, just like, how could you do that? And that was something that I felt very convicted of, like, you know, yes, they made some really bad mistakes and it's not fair to the kids, but me being bitter about it is not going to help this situation like at all. It's not going to help anyone heal. It's not going to help any growth um, happen in this situation. Yeah, we've, we've had lots of kids who came in with lots of trauma for really scary situations. It took us a while, actually, quite a while to get to that point where we were starting to realize that that was something we had to pay attention to. What made you realize that that was such an important thing for you to to see these these people as flawed humans rather than just bad people? I mean, it's just, it's definitely been a journey, but I've had some amazing friends who have done foster care as well. And sometimes just them speaking that truth, you know, to me or the way I see how they respond to those biological parents. And it makes me realize that I was not doing it right. Plus, you know, being bitter is just, it's just so exhausting. If you know what I mean? And a lot of times when you meet the parents, you just see how hurt and falling apart their life is. And your heart just kind of goes out to them. because you're like, man, they've lost like everything. And granted it's due in part to their choices, but they're still, I mean, they're mourning the loss of, you know, their children, the loss of a lot of different things. And so I think when you do start seeing them, as humans that are, you know, flawed and have made mistakes instead of, I don't know, just some big monster, it it helps you have some empathy for them. And it sounds to me like that this community of people, of friends who've done foster care in the past has really helped you reach a a different place and another level in the ability to, to support that biological family. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've got to be totally honest. We unfortunately have yet to have foster kiddos in our house that have been able to be reintegrated, which saddens me. Um, they, we've had quite a few that have gone on to be adopted by other family members. Um, but it's, 
it's hard that in all of our kiddos, we haven't yet had any of their parents that have been able to follow through, you know, on what they need to do in order to reintegrate because, you know, that's always what's best for the family is if they can get to a point where they can have a healthy house and a healthy life for those kids. So I don't know if you've had that opportunity. We have not yet. We've seen one family. Um, actually, the mom, I uh, don't know where she's at right now, but uh, she lost her rights were terminated because mom was the primary abuser. But um, the dad got his, got his life straight. He got his stuff together, got a job, was getting promoted, uh, got away from the place he was at and moved on to become a great dad. And I'm not going to lie. I will occasionally stalk his Facebook page. He doesn't put up much, but I get a chance to see the kids as they grow bigger and older. And you, you see them and, and I'm like, man, he doesn't even look like himself. And I'm like, you see a picture with a big smile and go, wait, I see the, I see his face. And the smile is such a heartwarming thing to see that you know mm-hmm. that, that they're still doing well. And that's, yeah. that's, yeah. Unfortunately, you haven't, you haven't had any of those opportunities yet. And we've only seen, I think really one situation where they went back to, to um, a bio mom that we've been able to, to see that we had a couple other kids go back with a bio dad as well, but we, we lost touch of them, but it's, mm-hmm. you know, that that's important for these kids to have that biological family. What do you think that, that we as foster parents could do to, to help encourage develop the skills I need and get back to having a family, you know, how can we help them do that? Yeah, that is really hard. Um, I think the struggle that we had that we weren't able to do that much is because none of our parents were doing, um, kind of any of the things they needed to, they weren't staying clean to do visits. And it's really hard to help someone make those good choices if they're not staying clean because their mind just can't, I don't know, process things the same. And so we haven't had the opportunity because almost every single one of our placements was because of parental drug use. Um, We haven't had, we've had abuse as well, but that was usually a secondary cause because of the drug use and um, a lot of neglect. So I had always hoped that maybe they would be able to get clean and then we could build that relationship and help them you know, learn those skills. But unfortunately, we didn't have that opportunity yet. We had one uh, lady on our show early on, I believe it's a three-part series called Hope for Amy. And she talks about walking out of the, not just drug addiction, she was a full-blown dealer and um, not not dime bags either. You know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was a pretty big deal that she'd gotten into and she got herself clean and got out of it. And those are such rare stories to find. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're, we have the same issue out here. Most of the kids who have come into care that we've met have had some level of involvement with drugs, if not the primary problem. Yeah. And I've, I've been thankful. I have had a few friends growing up that have come out of addiction. Um, I can think of a few off the top of my head, but it is, it is very rare. Um, because I mean, if it was easy, they wouldn't call it addiction. If you could just stop it, they'd call it something else. Drugs have been really rampant in our area for a while, and it's just gotten so bad. I don't know about mm-hmm. your area, but out here, meth and heroin are the two that are fairly inexpensive and easy to get a hold of and ridiculously addicting. Yeah, it's same in our area. Meth mainly is the big one. Um, yeah, and it's apparently really easy to get hands on because we have a huge issue with it. We use alcohol or we use drugs or you know, for some people – it's pornography, it's um, 
whatever it is, it's, it's a way to numb the pain. Mm-hmm. I think when we can figure out what that pain is and get and find our way to helping people in society, we might be able to, to get around some of that need for the, that people feel to numb that pain. But yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. My brother was just talking the other day about how he feels like as a society, instead of figuring out what's causing the pain, like getting to the core of it, um, overall, we just want to numb the pain, but pain has a purpose. The point is to tell you something's wrong. And so if you don't figure out why you have the pain and deal with the actual issue, you're just going to keep numbing it with anything you can find. I agree. I agree. And I've seen people use everything from, from drugs to, to religion to numb that pain. It's kind of a scary thing to watch people step outside of their real life in the real moment and live the life they were made for. So as you and your husband have stepped into this, this life that you are made for and reached out to help kids, you know, what would have been some things along your journey that have really inspired you? There's just been, so there's been some really hard times, as you know, as a foster parent, there's times where you just finally get everyone to bed after an especially horrid day of outbursts. And you just kind of look at each other and you're like, can we keep doing this? You know, you're just so worn out. But then there's those days where you can see the breakthrough, you can see the growth, um, you can see the healing and those days make it worth it. And I feel like you have to hold on to those days and those moments and those victories in order to get through the really hard parts, you know, the parts where you just got cussed out by a kid and your hood got dented because they were throwing a huge, insane fit outburst. I don't even know what to call it, you know, because who knows what even triggered them because you backtrack and you're not even sure what happened. And you're like, oh my gosh, can I do this anymore? I don't like getting called those words. Those suck. Um, but then the next day they come to you with something and they trust you with something that they've never trusted you with. And you're like, okay, I am making progress. I'm earning trust. They're starting to heal. They're starting to share. I can do this. This is worth it. Um, I think that I answered your question, but now I'm not even sure what you asked me, but yes, those (laughs) little moments, those are what make it worthwhile and what push you through all the hard parts. You know, the, uh, the car part sounds uniquely specific. Like maybe that's a real story. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to say who, cause they would kill me if I said that on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. We don't need names, but you know, I, I can, you know, I can attest to having some similar issues. You know, I've, you know, I've got some spots in the wall that still need to be repaired because you know, that happens. And you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the emotional, um, there's a right word for it. I don't know what it is. You know, it's not a tantrum. It's not a fit. It's an emotional outburst that that's beyond a kid's capacities to control sometimes. Yeah. I feel like, um, they go to fight or flight. Um, something happens that triggers that fight or flight response. And in that moment, it's, they're not the same child. They have gone totally into a different part of their brain that has no logic, no reasoning, it is strictly, I need to protect myself from this perceived threat, even though it's not necessarily real. They feel like they need to protect themselves and they will do like whatever it takes. And so it, it's almost like a totally different kid. It's like switch flips and they are now living in a different part of their brain. And until they can come out of that flight or fight, um, it's just kind of survival. I feel like 
just trying to get through it with the kid. And then once they calm down, you can start trying to process what just happened. I think you're dead on there because, you know, they, they call the amygdala the reptile brain. And I, I see that and I remember, you know, hearing the things that I've learned about it. And I'm always reminded of the image of an, of an, a crocodile or an alligator that, you know, just takes a bite at anything that gets close by. And we assume it's because they want to eat it, but it could also very well be just as much a, um, an attempt to survive, you know, to attempt to, to mitigate any threats that may come nearby. And when they get into that part of the brain, there, there's some interesting things. Actually, I um, just interviewed um, a lady, Alana Pratt, and um, she works with a lot of people who've been through sexual trauma. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I sat and actually talked with her in the interview and was talking about some of the different traumas that I'd been through as well in my life. And um, even though it's it's not sexual trauma, it's still it's still trauma. And she she walked through a process of learning how to 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 step the brain out of that fight or flight using um Oh, I can't remember the name of the acronym. It's it's been around for a while, but it's um, it's basically bilateral movement of the brain, which is a crazy idea. That just what what she was doing, and and we sat there and talked it through, and I went, wow, <laughs> that was actually somewhat effective. Yeah, I'm pretty pretty impressed with that because we were just having a conversation. It wasn't like a full on therapy session or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But there are ways to break that. There are ways to break through some of that. And it's amazing how effective that is and how much of that when when I was a kid or when you were a kid, that wasn't even thought about. You know, do you, do you have any specific resources that you've learned to find some help there that that the listeners can can find on on the Internet somewhere and, and help them take care of their own kids? Um, I'm trying to think. So most of mine, I have been really lucky that my my principal has done a lot of trainings on what are called trauma informed schools. And so I've gotten a lot of my training through the district. So I'd have to go and look and see what the names are um, of some of the the trainings that we've had, but they've been, they've been amazing. Um, They just kind of walk you through, you know, one of the trainings I went to, they just walked you through a scenario and they were like, this is how most teachers would respond. And it's not that it's bad, but you're not actually helping the student through the trauma instead of just trying to be like sit down right now stop talking you know if you can get them to actually open up and share and then later you can address what they did wrong instead of trying to address it in the moment when they're escalated so we've done a lot of like de-escalation and then you can address it later really a lot of it is dealing with people who are in the moment of crisis and that's that's what we do when we have kids in our house we have crisis after crisis that doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with what we're, what's happening in the house at this moment. You know, we, we've been dealing with that right now ourselves. I have a, I have a 14 year old son who's experienced a, a high level of trauma in his, in his past and he doesn't understand it. I can't even say I understand it necessarily, but I understand how trauma works enough to know that in those moments, when I'm over here, you know, trying to stay out of my own fight or flight, because I'm like, no, you're not going to do this. You're you're mm-hmm. about to aggravate, you know, but what I'm dealing with isn't, isn't behavior all the time. A lot of the time it's not. It's a mm-hmm. reaction to the past trauma in his brain. And that's what keeps me calm. Yeah. And it's hard because you're right. It does trigger your own fight or flight because they're doing behaviors that are, you know, dangerous and you know, they can be screaming at you and in your face. And like, of course, your own body wants to take over and be like, okay, let's go. 
let's do this and you have to remind yourself and then sometimes it will it actually sometimes helps to remind me is they'll start um like in the moment they'll accuse me of things that aren't true and they're so not true that it reminds me that in that moment i'm not ginger i am their abuser from the past and they are saying stuff to me that they want to say to her because the stuff they're accusing me of is so far out of reality and that almost actually even though it's hurtful because of what they're saying is some pretty bad accusations it's almost helpful because i can be like well that's so totally not me that i know that that is something that they're reliving right now from a past abuse um, and so that's happened actually quite a few times um, and so i've started to realize that when they get into that I become this other person in their brain. Have you ever had that happen? Oh, I have seen that happen time and again. I know exactly what you're talking about. How do you handle it in that moment? Once you once you're able to realize, hey, they're talking to somebody else. Yeah, I'm talking to to the trauma kid. I'm talking to the trauma side of the brain here, and they're talking to somebody who's not me standing here. How do you move forward in that moment to be able to best deal with that experience? Uh, it depends on the kiddo. My oldest daughter, she, when she gets to that place, like she just needs space. And so like, I'll ask her, you know, like, do you want alone or do you want me here? And like, you know what I mean? And I kind of let her pick, but a lot of times once she like gets that out there, I can be like, you know, that's not me, but I'm here, you know, like I'm here, I'm here to listen. I'm here you know, whatever. And sometimes after she screamed all of that out at me, she's actually ready to just get a hug. You know, like it's, and sometimes she's not. Sometimes she needs still more space. And so sometimes I'll just be like, okay, you're outside, you're safe. I'm going to go inside. And whenever you are ready to come in, you know, come in. Um, and so sometimes it, it just depends on you know, because I'll ask her, do you want a hug? And thankfully, we're to the place now where she can give me a yes or a no. For a long time, she still wasn't able to trust me enough, I think, to even answer that. So it's kind of grown over the years that we've had this. The one I'm thinking of right now, it's grown over the years. And she, you know, will still sometimes scream that stuff out. And then I can be like, okay, like, are you ready to hug? Do you need more time? Like, where are you? And she can actually tell me usually what she needs. That's an amazing ability on her part to get to that place where she can realize that in the moment of her crisis. So she's been with us for about three years now, but we actually also had her for a year in kindergarten. Um, so we had her for a year and then she left and then we found out she was in need of placement again. And so we were able to bring her back. Um, and then she's been with us and we adopted her a little over a year ago. And I, I do know that the actual adoption, I feel like, has helped her be able to grow in her trust so much more because she knows it's permanent. She knows that we're 100% all in. And I, I noticed that her level of trust and just being able to grow went up a lot for her having that permanency. What an amazing ability for her to grow in that time frame. That's a pretty short time frame to be able to move from a place of trauma to a place of trust. Uh, she has an amazing counselor who has been, she's had since she came back with us that they meet, you know, 
sometimes weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, like depending on the time. And um, I think it took almost a year of my daughter telling her therapy stupid, I don't need you. And her just being like, all right, well, let's play a game instead then. And being so patient and like that Mary all of a sudden one day was like, okay, I think I might trust you. Now I can actually talk to you, you know? And so, and you know, she's worked amazingly with her, but then my daughter's also willing to put in the hard work and willing to talk about later and process what happened. And so, yeah, I'm really proud of her growth. Most, most adults don't get to that place in their life. They don't, I mean, we wouldn't have shows like cops that have been on TV for a decade mm. if people had that ability and for a child to be able to build that skill set and that ability, you know, that that's a pretty amazing thing. If you really sit and think about it, whether, and for a kid, for your own biological kid who didn't grow up with trauma to build that is amazing. A kid who's been mm-hmm. through some trauma, who's lost their first family, you know, that's, that's, that's a, that's just amazing. Sometimes I still get frustrated with behaviors. I'm sure you're like that. And then I think back to three years ago and stuff that we were dealing with then. And I'm like, yeah, this really isn't that big of a deal. Like compared to, you know, what we were doing three years ago, this is kind of just normal teenage stuff. So I need to probably calm it down a little bit and quit expecting miracles. <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever get to the spot where I quit expecting miracles to happen, but you know, <laughs> when they do, it's pretty amazing, but it is pretty rare. And, and you're right. Setting your expectations is, is a real critical part of this. What, what led you down the road to understand that you had to set your expectations right with, with kids who've been through so much? Uh, to be honest, it's, I'm so thankful to have the husband that I do. Um, I am definitely, I don't know if you know much about Enneagrams or if you do anything like that. I'm like a type one. Like I want things perfect. I want things nice. I hold myself and like everyone around me to like the standard, right? My husband is not a type one. I mean, he's hardworking and he's amazing, but he will call me out and I love it because he does it lovingly, but he'll be like, hey, um, maybe we should not expect that from children and like he so he's really good about he'll remind me of the growth he'll remind me of you know what is a realistic expectation here um but he does it usually every once in a while he'll just tell me to calm down and that doesn't go good but usually he'll do it (laughs) in a nice way and you know he'll help me to see it um but yeah so I've been very thankful you know God knew what he was doing when he put us together I couldn't imagine doing this crazy journey with, with anybody What's else. What's his Enneagram type? He, so he's whatever type refuses to take the test because he doesn't want to be typed. So <laughs> <laughs> whatever type that is, that's what he is. If I had to guess, I would say that sounds like an eight to me because they like to challenge things. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I'm a five. I'm a hard five with the six wing. So I, I know what you're talking about. You know, my wife is not at all you know I, I don't know how deep off into the enneagram stuff you are but i am definitely part of the head triad and she's definitely part of the heart triad which gives us together when we can work together it's an amazing skill for us to be able to work together and really bring our part of it to the equation and we can really work well together when we're not working well together we can butt heads pretty hard we, we don't do it so much anymore we've been together for mm-hmm. 20 years and we've had about 20 kids in our house over the years so we've kind of 
we, we've kind of learned to mellow with age and, and kind of work together even when I don't feel like it because I know it's best and it'll come out the best yep. in the end. But, but yeah, it's, you know, that, that's personality types is a huge piece of it. And we talked to um, Melissa Corkum, I think was her name here a little while back. And Melissa was an Enneagram specialist and she, she talked about that to some extent. I think the amazing thing that we can learn from that is that all these kids come into this world with a personality type. They come into this world with certain things about them. And what it, that personality type is doesn't really matter so much as it is that we understand that they view the world differently than us. And then you start putting on, layering on that, that trauma that they've experienced. You start layering on the, the, all the different experiences, the loss of family. You, you, all those pieces change who they are as a human. And it's our job to try and understand that and be understanding about it. Have you noticed that in your own kids? Because I know that in my house, we have eight people living here now between my wife and kids. I think we have eight of us. And of the Enneagram types, I think we've almost covered all nine between the family. <laughs> yeah, so I I know what my older kids are. My six-year-old still a little too young to kind of type him. But we have, you know, five and eight and nine. I'm a one. Um, so we're kind of like all over the place. So, and then I do have one daughter who is also a one and it's kind of funny because she'll do stuff that I'm like, Oh yeah, I did that as a kid. And now I know why that drove my mom crazy <laughs> because I think I did that exact same thing. And so it does help to remember that, um, the way I say something, I could say the exact same thing to two kids, but it could mean completely different things. Or like if I'm feeling stressed and frazzled, it might not affect these two kids. They can just be like, eh, I'm stressed. But these two kids are worried about what did I do to make mom stressed? And you know what I mean? They're trying to fix why is mom stressed? And so it's a good thing to just remember that um, the same situation could affect the kids way differently, even if it's not a trauma situation. That's wise to realize that is, is where your family lies because it's really easy for me to look at the whole world and not understand why all you people don't see things the way that I do. Cause obviously <laughs> I have all the data as a type five. I'm obviously right. <laughs> you know? So my, my oldest son is a type five and yeah, he gets very impatient why everyone doesn't just know that his answer is right. <laughs> well, he's probably right. Trust me. <laughs> so as you've learned all that about it, because hey, the, the, the Enneagram is such an interesting thing, but it, it's, it's a tool. And that's one of the things Melissa was mm -hmm. really hitting on in, in the episode we talked about before. It's a tool in the toolbox to understand these kids mm -hmm. and where you can't type other, other people or you're not supposed to type other people or your kids. Right. Oftentimes you can mm -hmm. see parts of it and, and grow through that. Have you used any of that with, with the foster kids that have come into your house? To be honest, most of the kiddos that have come in have been younger. So it's, it's so hard to tell. I think the oldest um, that we haven't adopted was like in third grade. And by that age, you know, and there was so much trauma and other things that um, I didn't even really even try to. Um, for that, it was more just how can I connect with them? You know, um, I know I'm sure you're like this with foster kiddos and any kiddos building a relationship is key for any sort of structure or discipline or routine, because if they don't think that you care about them, they're not even going to try to, uh, 
fall in line is a bad phrase, but I don't know what else to say. They're not even going to try to follow the rules. Yes. One thing I've definitely noticed is that you, you would like to have control over the kids most days. All you really get is influence. And that influence is mm -hmm. only built in relationship. Yeah. And the same thing's true in the classroom as a teacher. Like um, building a relationship, I feel like can cut out a ton of discipline because if the students actually think I care not that I'm not gonna have any discipline because I do but you you don't have quite as much just like rebellion just for the sake of like you don't care about me why should I do what you want me to do and being a math teacher I'm not necessarily everybody's favorite subject but if they know I'm kind of weird and zany and I seriously care about them. They're willing to put in a lot more effort for me than they might be for another teacher that they're like, um, yeah, they're here, they're doing their job, but I don't feel like they care if I learn or if they care if I skipped, they wouldn't care. You know, like they're less likely to put in the, the work they need to to be successful when they don't think you Just care. Just so you know us type five Enneagrams, we like math. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I also love math. It's data driven. We can handle that. But... <laughs> Since you're not a type five, you, you probably have more creativity in you. And I know we were talking um, before the show and you have sat down and wrote a story. Wrote, written. I don't know. It's not English class, right? We should. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. I'm a math teacher. It doesn't matter <laughs> to me. Yes. I have written a book about my family's journey um, through foster care and adoption. And it's called My Patchwork Family. I'm kind of implying that we have all come in and been sewn together into a family. Um, I wrote it specifically from my oldest biological son's perspective because I, um, I guess I should backtrack. About three years ago, I was looking for a good kid's book about foster care and adoption, and I was having trouble finding any books that were about foster care adoption. I could find a lot of just adoption books, um, but I was struggling finding kids' books about it. And so I was like, well, maybe I'll just write, write my own story. And at that time it was just gonna be for me and my family and it's grown since then. But when I sat down to write it, I was talking to my husband and I was like, you know, how do I even wanna approach this? How do I wanna address this topic? And he was like, well, remember how our oldest son had always wanted a little brother and we never had any biological other sons. And then I didn't even think about it, but the day we adopted my youngest Bentley, he said, I finally have a little brother, like a forever little brother. And it like meant so much to him. And so that's kind of like, I was like, okay, I'm gonna write it from his perspective and what he's kind of gone through as our family's grown first, you know, with two biological sisters and then with foster kids and then adoption and um, kind of what that's like from his perspective to give a voice to those other foster kiddos that truly love every kid that comes into the house and is willing to share with them and accepts them immediately as a brother or sister with no um, reserve. Even, you know, when his heart's broken, when they leave, when the next kiddo comes in, they're already like all in. Love you, you're my brother, you're my sister. I want to introduce you to everybody. Um, and so I wanted to give a voice to that because I think a lot of times people don't think about that. They, we, and my husband and I get so many compliments. It's kind of awkward about being foster parents, but I feel like a lot of times no one thinks about our kids and what they go through in their sacrifices. So I just kind of wanted to, to tell it from that perspective. 
Yeah, it sounds like your kids have really done a great job of integrating that into their lives. You know, I, I know my my dad was my family never did foster care growing up, but my dad was um, he was had the unique ability to to really speak into the lives of young men, you know, young boys, teenage boys. He could just talk to them. And I had a couple of friends of mine who to this day, you know, I can I can take you right to their house. Well, I can take you to one of their houses. The other one lives in Colorado now. I'm not going quite that far. <laughs> But, but, um, but, you know, when my dad was sick with cancer, I'm going to tell you who was there. I wasn't the only one, you know, my, my other siblings weren't the only ones, you know, my, my buddies who, who referred to my dad as pops all the time, you know, you know, Hey dad, what's, you know, that, that was just a common thing. And he was able to really mentor kids in that way and reach out and, and to have kids able to, to do that alongside of of you with, with a kid coming into your house and it only speaks volumes to how you've raised them and their willingness to help other kids. Yeah. My, my kid is, I, they just have such sweethearts. I mean, obviously they have flaws and they drive me crazy some days, but I can never fault them uh, for just their willingness to share and love. And I can remember any time we'd have foster kiddos move out, you know, for a variety of reasons they would want to like, they would give them their own stuffed animals or their own blankets, you know, like they just wanted to send them off with like everything that they could. And so I think that just speaks a lot to their, their hearts and their willingness to share. It definitely does. And to me, that speaks a lot to your ability to raise kids in a way that, that makes them want to help others. So, you know, thank you so much for being that foster parent because you know, foster parents get a bad rap, mostly because there's a lot of really bad foster parents out there. And man, it's a shame to hear it. But some of these people who are out there working their, just working their their butt off trying to figure out how to get this kid rated in a certain way so they make more money and and take away, you know, different pieces of who they are. And, and, oh, this kid needs an IEP. Oh, we're going to have to hold him back a year. So we have this delayed kid and try to always get more money out of the system and doing these horrible things. Or some of the stories we've heard about sexual abuse, even by foster parents. And man, there's too many stories of people doing that. And it's great to talk to somebody who is in it for the right reason and has a good heart. Yeah. It's actually sad that um, my, my daughter, some of her trauma came from past foster families. She already had trauma from her biological family. And then, you know, in the time from when she left us to kindergarten before we realized that she was needing a home, she had been in quite a few foster families in that in-between time without us, you know, even realizing it. And yeah, a lot. So a lot of her trauma, unfortunately, has come from other foster families or other foster siblings or, you know, and that just, it does break my heart because these kids need a safe place. Like that, that's what the foster family is supposed to be. And I feel like if you're not wanting to be the safe place, then just don't do it. Just stay away. Um, and yeah, we've had to help her get off medicines. She honestly didn't need that she was on, which made her, like you said, that different tier. But it was like, girl, you don't need this medicine. This is you know, like keeping you from being you. Um, and so obviously we worked with doctors and stuff, but we were like, you, you don't need this. Let's get you off of this. So, and she, she's mentioned how she, how glad she is that she's not having to take any of that medicine anymore. 
Well, and it's people like you who inspire others to go out and become that next place that can provide strength for these young kids who need a responsible, caring adult to step in and add add something to their life that they've never had. I think it's Josh Ship who said, if, if you're not familiar with Josh Ship, anybody who hasn't heard of him, just Google him. You'll you'll hear his message online. And you know, his story, he he tells it openly and he says, you know. Every child is one caring adult away from being a success story, you know, and people like, like you and your husband can really help to inspire people to be that one caring adult to change a kid's life forever. And that's the power that we have in this journey. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out to the people that are listening to this, that we are not perfect foster parents. Cause I think sometimes people don't, want to do foster care because they think that somehow we're perfect at it or we've got it all figured out and that's not true we just uh, I mean there's times I lose my temper and I scream and then I have to say hey guys I'm sorry mom lost it that's not acceptable and so like I think it's important that people realize like you need to do it for the right reasons and you need to do it out of love. But if you expect to do it perfect, you're, you're not going to. And so my philosophy is when I mess up, which is going to happen, I just do what I expect my kids to do. I expect, I, I make myself to be like, Hey, I messed up. That wasn't right. I should not have screamed at you. Um, and I ask for forgiveness because I feel like if I expect my kids to do that with each other, and with me, I have to be willing to model that. And um, I mean, it's humbling, it's embarrassing. And my kids always wanna like interrupt me before I even finish apologizing though and be like, oh, it's okay. And I'm like, no, you need to let me finish. You need to let me acknowledge what I did wrong. Um, and so that's something that I think anyone who's listening who thinks, oh, you know, they're just a different level of parent. They've got it all figured out so they can foster. That's not true. We, we mess up daily. Um, and so it's just a matter of being willing to, to give of yourselves that makes you a good foster parent. It sounds to me like you guys are a great place who may be not perfect, but you're in the right place just the same. And so I, it's great to, to, to hear your story. And I know that you sent me a copy of your, of your book. Um, and I read through it and I, as soon as I looked at it, my wife said, what are you doing? I said, hang on here, look at that. I just sent you an email <laughs> and she, she uh, got done and she says, Oh, I like that. That's, that's important. And because the story that you tell is an important story because while we are foster parents, you know, our, our kids, whether they're biological kids or siblings um, or, or adopted kids or siblings, they join this with us, whether or not they, they really wanted to, you know, they'll tell you they do because they feel like that's what they should say. But you'll find out sometimes some of these kids will tell you what they think you want to hear. And instead of telling you what they really think. And, and mm-hmm. so they walk this journey alongside of us. And it's, it's a perspective mm-hmm. that needs to be heard. Because it, what good does it do to, to add this to a kid's life if it's causing problems in your, in your other children's lives. So it's, it's an amazing viewpoint to, to explore and think about and look at. And it sounds to me like, like in your story, you've done an amazing job with not only the, the foster kids who've come to your house, but with the biological kids you've raised to have an amazing sense of character 
to be ready to love anyone who walks in the door. Well, thank you. I don't know if I can take full credit though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll let you take at least half credit. We'll give your husband the other half. How about that? (laughs) That that sounds like a... (laughs) Sounds good. (laughs) Yeah. So, well, it was great to get to talk to you today. Um, I'm certain that if anybody would like to, uh, to pick this book up, if you just click on the podcast notes, there will be a link in there. I have to put this little caveat in there all the time because Apple Podcasts rules the entire world, but they're weird and wonky sometimes on, their, uh, on the links in their show notes. So if you look at it and you can't find it, just click the button to visit our website. It's fosterCareNation.com. And if you hit the podcast note tab on the right and scroll down to the story with Ginger Berg, and I'm going to warn you, Berg is not spelled the way you think it is. It's spelled a little bit funny. <laughs> There's an extra silent A in there. But it's Ginger Berg, and if you'll scroll down to that episode, you will find all the show notes will be in there, and the links will all be active there, so you can reach in and and uh, see that. And she has a Facebook group for the book as well. You could reach out and connect with her there as well. And um, is there anything else that you'd like to add to this before we get done today, Ginger? I don't think so. Uh, I just want to thank you so much for taking the time to let me tell my story um, and just thank everyone who's listening Uh, Just by listening and educating yourself um, just more on foster care and adoption, I feel like you can really be part of solving um, this issue. And if you have ever thought about foster care and you have questions, please just contact one of us because we really need more loving foster families in this country. A hundred percent. I can't agree more. That's one of the the biggest needs we have in this this part of our world is we need more caring foster families who are not trying to get in it for the money because, well, let's just face it, that's not a reason for to do anything really. But if you guys would like to, uh, to share your story here on, on the show, feel free to reach out and contact us um, at fostercareuj at gmail.com or go to the website at fostercarenation.com and our email is on there as well. So you guys can reach out and, and touch base with us there. And we have a Facebook page for uh, if you just look up foster care and unparalleled journey, which is a whole lot. And well, Ginger, I usually have to tell people you haven't spelled that word in a lot of years since high school, but you probably have spelled unparalleled. Most people haven't. <laughs> oh man, that's normal. Yeah, with in high school math, we do that all the yeah, time. <laughs> the R's and L's and how many? Yeah, just so if you really want to find us and you don't want to have to go Google the spelling, just look for Foster Care Nation, search for that, and you'll find us out there. We're pretty easy to find. And reach out if you have any anything you'd like to talk about. If you'd like to have your story highlighted on the show, we'd be more than happy to have you on here. And we'll see you guys next Tuesday. <laughs>